Uh, it's a big day in tennis today as Andy Murray becomes the 26th man to top the ATP ranking charts. And it's the first time since, I believe, 2004 February that someone other than Federer, Nadal, or Djokovic is going to sit at the top of the rankings when the new rankings come out on Monday. This is Saqib welcoming you all in Tennis Podcast with an Accent. And I'm here joined by Anand. Hey everyone, great day for tennis and we're looking forward to discussing different topics with you. One is Andy Murray's ascent to the world number one ranking and which also means we need to talk about what is going on with Novak Djokovic. So that will be our second topic and finally we'll conclude with Angelique Kerber's amazing year which we missed in our last podcast but it's definitely worth talking about. All right, let's talk about Andy Murray. What an amazing achievement. Uh, This guy has been very close to being world number one for several years now, but he's always been overshadowed by the other big three. Saqib, I I think this is something that's well-deserved, definitely, for for a guy that's been right at the cusp of becoming world number one for many years. Couldn't agree more. Uh, Murray has played in uh, the fourth wheel in this uh, greatest generation of tennis. And uh, a lot of times in some other era, he would have racked up more titles and even probably gotten to the number one ranking a lot earlier. But it's just a testimony to his will. He kept uh, following the likes of uh, Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. And finally, he has his own moment under the sun. So it's an awesome uh, day for Murray and all his fans and tennis in general. The amazing thing about Andy Murray is that this guy was first time he became world number two was seven years and two months ago. That is just a really long time for a guy to be waiting to be world number one. It tells you how good his peers have been, how they've kept him away from that world number one ranking and how much it must mean to him. Later in this conversation, I'm sure we'll discuss if he deserves it today, uh, but there's no question he deserves to be a world number one when you consider all of the players that got there before in the past. Like even players like Carlos Moya, uh, Marcelo Rios, Andy Murray definitely deserve to be in the conversation as a world number one. Uh, true. I mean, it's fascinating how the game has evolved. We keep saying this like uh, this cliche all the time. Uh, Moya, Rios, and Kefalnikov, and all these guys who got there. Tennis was uh, quite different then. It was an era of specialists. Like a guy like Sampras, who was the most uh, dominant player, he pretty much had an off-season starting Monte Carlo till Queens. So there was uh, other players like on clay, they were racking up points. So Murray, on the other hand, has had to play in the most consistent era where uh, your best player is pretty much the best player week in, week out. So yeah, it is pretty phenomenal that uh, he was ranked six, seven years ago as a number two player. And since then, he had to wait his chance. Granted, there are other stories like Federer calling half a season, Nadal, again, uh, not as close to his very best, and then Djokovic having a uh, little bit of a lack of form or lack of interest, but uh, it's still, uh, to me, it's full credit to Murray to get there because it's a ten-and-a-half-month race. You just It's not a dash. Here are some of the players who uh, never became world number one after they became number two. Michael Steek, Goran Ivanisevic, Michael Chang... Tommy Haas, 
you definitely wouldn't want to put Andy Murray in the same category as any of these players. He definitely didn't had to get out of this group here. And uh, to be honest, if Murray, I think he was pretty candid himself. He said he didn't envision himself becoming or getting to the top of the summit. So if Murray were to never get to number one, I still think he was heads and shoulders above the names you have taken. He's, I think, in many ways, and many people believe he's a class above then Leighton Hewitt, uh, Marat Safin, and Andy Roddick, some of the guys who actually did become number one, and they were only a generation apart. So Murray's fortune or misfortune has been the company he's kept at the top, and uh, I, th- I think now finally he can say he's also a world number one. So having been Yasakib, how long do you think he's going to stay here for uh, at the world number one ranking? Uh, I-, I still think, like uh, I've been predicting uh, elsewhere uh, besides the podcast, I still think uh, the road to the championship is still on Novak's racket. First things first, if Murray wins this uh, final tomorrow against Isner, he would have some breathing room going into London. But it's a 1,500-point swing, and Novak has won the thing four years running, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a guy who can turn this around anytime, and uh, it's still pretty hard to believe that since French Open, he's kind of having a slight lack of form. This this kind of brings us to our next top, topic, Sakib. Great segue, because... Novak Djokovic has completely fallen off the map by his standards. And I repeat, by his standards, any other player would be proud to have a year that he had after French Open. But something's going on with this guy. He calls it a lack of motivation. He's going traveling around with a guru who's giving him hugs. Um, <laughs> something, something's happening with him, Sakib. And explain to us what... what What's ailing Novak Djokovic at this moment? Uh, I mean, my guess is as good as any tennis fan. We've been reading the same stuff. So, look, this whole French Open uh, success, that was the only major that was missing. And uh, people don't give him enough credit. He has a Novak slam, which uh, the great Roger Federer and Nadal, they didn't do that. Uh, he won four, all four in a row. Granted, not in the calendar year. So that must have taken some emotional toll. And you can see what he put himself through while achieving that. And now he's... Uh, I think it's, it's only law of averages. I think he's having a little lull, which most players have had. He still won Canada. He was a couple of sets away from winning the U.S. Open. So I think he'll, he'll, he'll figure things out. Uh, but this should not in any way uh, be an asterisk or like uh, something held against Andy's number one chart. While I agree with you, Andy's ranking is well-deserved. This is where I think you and I will start to disagree. I think he got really lucky this time. Andy Murray would not have been world number one if Novak Djokovic, let's say, was even playing 100% in terms of physical health. It wasn't just the fact that he lost his desire. I think we saw at the U.S. Open, Novak Djokovic was not 100% fit. He has no business losing to players like Sam Querrey. He has no business losing to... uh, even this week, Marin Cilic, who he beat 14 times in a row. This is a guy not playing even close to 70 or 80%, I would say physically, not just mentally. Andy Murray took advantage of a really good situation for him. The other guy that has been beating him regularly for the last two or three years, Roger Federer, is also missing on the tour. So one could argue, hey, number one and two, they're missing. Who else would be number one then? Now it is Andy Murray because he was the next logical guy to become number one because the other two guys have kind of gone missing in the last few weeks. I respectfully disagree. Uh, I would say we we have to live in the present. We cannot put the ifs because otherwise there are so many ifs. If Kevin Anderson had only held serve last year against Djokovic at Wimbledon, Federer would have won Wimbledon. Who knows what could have happened? 
So, to Murray's defense, you're right. Murray's best doesn't measure up to Novak's best or even Roger's best. But Murray can only play who's across the net. And uh, even after the French Open, look, most guys would have thrown the towel because Djokovic is so good. And Djokovic, Murray, that matchup was becoming so predictable. Some of my friends were just hoping that this, this matchup doesn't happen because it's so predictable. Djokovic is going to win. So after the French Open, Murray just, you know, he kept doing what he does. Djokovic has an elbow or maybe some motivation loss or emotional burnout. Guess what? Who's in the finals of Rio? Who's in the finals of Wimbledon? Who's winning Shanghai? I think where Djokovic lost this ranking is not really the loss of form. If he had even played Beijing and Cincinnati, this we wouldn't be talking about Murray being number one today. And it would have been Novak's ranking to lose despite his standard uh, has dripped from what his uh, usual ex- excellent standard is. But going back to Murray, I mean, uh, most people know that Bjorn Borg has won 11 majors. But a lot of people forget that when John McEnroe started beating him left and right, this is a guy who walked off the court in the 81 U.S. Open final ceremony. And most people thought that's a toilet break. The guy just left the uh, U.S. Open stage. He took a cab and just never came back. So my thing with Murray is a little more. Because like what you said, he's been beaten by Djokovic, Nadal, and Federer so many times. This is not a 10-month race. This is like a race. The guy has been like battling the ghost. He was just, he's, he's there. And fine, Djokovic left the door open. My counter question is, if Murray still faltered, then how the argument would be, oh, Novak just lost interest and Murray choked and still didn't get the ranking. So you can only play who's across the net. And uh, yeah, Murray, it would be more satisfactory if Murray had beaten Djokovic. But I still think he, he, he got there. He just took all the hard steps. He didn't take the elevator. It's like step by step. He's there and it's, I don't see any issue with uh, him being deserving. Go back about 10, or 10 to 15 years ago, before Roger Federer uh, took over men's tennis. You had Leighton Hewitt uh, becoming world number one. You had Andy Roddick becoming world number one. You started to realize at that point in time, it was a quirk of timing and fate that these guys played well in tournaments before Federer got to his peak. I feel the same way right now. There is a bit of a void with with Djokovic not playing at his best level. There is a huge void with Roger Federer not being there as well. Rafa is obviously in decline. And this is all adding up to Andy Murray holding forth until I think the next great player comes along and until Djokovic returns with a bang next year. I think that's a little harsh on Andy. The computer will always have someone at number one. And believe me, Novak's fatigue and emotional burnout, that's part of the tennis cycle. No one has ever felt what Novak felt in June when he went over and won the French Open. And he was holding all four majors since labor. Mm-hmm. Not in the calendar year, but he was holding all four. So that emotional burnout is really, I think, a part and parcel of the grind Novak Djokovic put himself through. And uh, we hope he's back playing his best tennis, but that's part of the, that's part of the tennis, uh, I think, the tour. Even Isner and Mahur, remember when they played that epic match? Later on, these guys admitted that it took him almost like six, seven months to get that match out of the system. And these are very fine, fit, supremely fit tennis players. So Djokovic having a little bit of a mental dry spell. Guess what? You know, Murray's still doing what he's doing. I mean, this guy has won like more than 70 matches this year. And his, I think, weakest tournament is a Nishikori loss at Flushing Meadow in quarterfinals. Uh, that's pretty phenomenal stuff. So, and like I think Roddick was saying, it's... Uh, you can still have an argument that Djokovic is a better player 
but the computer and the rankings go by data and it's a race from Jan- January to November and Murray has more points. Yeah, and Andy Murray, I don't know if you listen to our podcast someday when we become famous, but we really do love you. Uh, <laughs> we both are big fans of Andy Murray, uh, but somehow this is an itch that won't go away. And the only way to scratch this itch for me is Andy beat Novak at the ATP Tour World Finals. Interestingly, the same theme has been prevalent in women's tennis for the most of the year because the majority of us feel that a lot of it is on Serena Williams' racket, but then Angie could very, very deserving world number one. So same argument could be made there. This time, actually, the player with the more majors is holding the ranking, but uh, the Williams nation always thinks it's on Serena's racket. What do you say? Yeah, less of a debate here with uh, Kerber's performance through the year. Three Grand Slams, she won fair and square against Serena in one of them. She lost at Wimbledon to Serena, but she came back and beat Pliskova at the U.S. Open final. Phenomenal year for her. And let's also not forget she made the Olympics final, and she also made the final here at the WTA, uh, WTA uh, Tour Finals. Yeah, Angie Kerber's year reminds me of the Pete Sampras year. You win Australia and you win U.S. and lose first round at Roland Garros. <laughs> <laughs> I think Angie Kerber is uh, really a deserving number one, and she beat Serena to win a slam, so she didn't go anywhere around it. She beat the best player in Australia. So the year ended with Dominika Sibilkova winning the World Tour Finals. Kudos to her, but I'll tell you this, she got really lucky. She didn't really deserve to win that tournament. She was one and two. It was a round robin. The format really helped her out because she came to the semifinals against Kuznetsova, who had played a couple of rough matches. She won there, and of course, she beat Kerber, very well deserved in the final. But you have to think the best player out there was Angelique Kerber. Unfortunately, she lost the one match that mattered, but that doesn't put a dent on her year. Sweta is one of my favorite players on WTA, and she really... Uh, had an amazing run winning Moscow and then uh, just qualifying at the very last possibility. She had to win the title. She won the title and then she was playing phenomenal till the Sibirkova semifinal. Actually, the second set. It could have gone either way. So, uh, yeah, that was uh, to me, that was a match of the tournament. Uh, go- going back to Kerber, do you think, Sakib, that she's going to defend the Australian Open? Um, Serena Williams was sitting on the sidelines watching all of this happen. You know how much of a competitor she is. Uh, I think with Serena, it's pretty clear that she's only focusing on the slams. And, uh, and, and the tricky part there is she's playing a very, very selectively cut-down schedule. I, I believe she played only eight or nine events this year. And out of those, she still reached three f- major finals. So that's still a pretty phenomenal year. But by Serena Williams, she's one and two. So maybe it's not as phenomenal by her expectations. I don't know. I, I, I'm a big believer in uh, you have to play a bigger schedule to get these results. You don't lose two finals when you're Serena Williams, so maybe she has to add some more tournaments because she just has to be extra sharp for those big moments because the rest of the field is catching up with Muguruza and uh, Angie Kerber and uh, even someone like Petra who can get hot like Wawrinka and just take a major anytime. Let's call it then, Australian Open, who's going to win it? I, I still think it's going to be Serena. She's going to come back and probably beat Kerber in the final. Uh, okay, I, I won't call who's winning it, but I'll bet against that final won't happen. I'll play safe. Fair enough. I'd like to conclude on the note that uh, our next uh, podcast episode would focus on the World Tour Finals in London. And as a Dominic team fan, I'm kind of mixed emotions right now. 
I'm glad that he made made the cut because he had a spectacular start of the year. But uh, going in with the kind of tennis he's played, he seems very tired or either some of the top guys have just figured him out and he needs to make certain adjustments. And uh, uh, he's going in as the darkest horse right now. Just I hope a team can uh, prove the naysayers wrong and just puts up a decent fight. What do you think? I think Saqib had a tear in his eye when he said that about team. <laughs> He's going to lose all his matches. I can guarantee you that. Uh, it's unfortunate because this was a guy who looked like he was the next big thing. And I still think he is one of the next big things. Uh, unfortunately, his performance has tailed off. Hopefully, he manages his schedule better next year. Thanks for joining you all. We had a great time talking about these topics. And we'll be talking again about the World Tour Finals. Till then.